Chapter Seven, Part One of Biography of Muhammad Jibakwakwa by Samuel Moore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven, Muhammad's Early Life, etc. We shall now proceed at once to the more important portion of the work, describing the early history, life, trials, sufferings, and conversion of Muhammad to Christianity, his arrival in America, his journey to and sojourn in Haiti and return to this country again, his views, objects, and aims. His parents, as before stated, were of different tribes or nations. His father was Mohammedan in religion, but his mother was of no religion at all. He states, My mother was like a good many Christians here, who like to be Christians in name, but do not like to worship God much. She liked Mohammedanism very well, but did not care much about the worshipping part of the matter. Mohammedans are much greater worshippers than Christians, and worship with more apparent zeal and devotion. The family consisted of two sons and three daughters, besides twins that died in infancy. The Africans are very superstitious about twins. They imagine that all twins are more knowing than any other children and so with respect to the child born next after twins. They are considered to know almost everything, and are held in high esteem. If the twins live, an imagine of them is made out of a particular wood, one for each of them, and they are taught to feed them or offer them food whenever they have any. If they die, the one next to them by birth has an image of them made, and it is his duty to feed them or offer them food. Mahoma was the next born after twins, and these little duties he faithfully performed. It is supposed the image keeps them from harm, and preserves them in war. He was consequently highly esteemed on account of his birth. It was never supposed he never said anything wrong, and everything he wished was done for him on the instant. This, no doubt, was the reason his mother so fondly loved him, and was the cause of his youthful recklessness. They never crossed or controlled him. His mother was the only person who dared to even check him. His love for his mother was exceedingly great. His uncle was a very rich man, who was blacksmith to the king, and he wanted Muhammad to learn that trade. But his father destined him for the mosque, intending to bring him up as one of the prophet's faithful followers. For that purpose, he was sent to school, but not liking school very much, he went to live with his uncle and learned the art of making needles, knives, and all such kinds of things. His father afterwards replaced him at school, but he soon ran away. He did not like the restraint that his brother, the teacher, put upon him. His brother was a staunch Mohammedan and well learned in Arabic. Mahama did not progress very well in learning having a natural dread of it. The manner of teaching is rather different to other countries, the Africans having neither books nor papers, but a board called Walla, on which is written a lesson which the pupil is required to learn to read and write before any other is given. When that lesson is learned, the board is cleaned and a new one written. Scholars are not permitted to be absent without special leave from the teacher. If truant is played, punishment follows. No fees are due until education is complete. School inspection is made in the following manner. 
a large meeting-house, generally a mosque, is selected, whither the pupils repair together with the teachers, who must read twenty chapters of the Quran, and if the pupil reads the whole twenty chapters without missing a single word, his education is considered finished, and the fees of instruction are immediately paid. Muhammad's uncle had property in Salgar, whither he would repair to buy gold, silver, brass, and iron for the purposes of his business. The gold and silver he made into bracelets for the arms, and earrings and finger-rings, the Africans being very fond of such kinds of ornaments. The needles in Africa are made by hand. The process is very tedious. In the first place, the iron is hardened or converted into something like steel. It is then made into fine wire by a process of hammering, and cut into suitable lengths as required, when it is again beaten and made sharp at the point by filing, and finally polished by rubbing on a smooth stone with the hand. From this description of needle-making, it may be clearly seen how much labor has to be bestowed upon all branches of manufacture, for want of better tools and machinery. An African bellows deserves some notice. It is said, necessity is the mother of invention. Whoever doubted this fact, let him attentively read the following, and if they deny that position, they surely cannot but say that invention of the bellows in Africa certainly had a father. The bellows is composed of a goatskin, taken off whole. A stick passes through from the neck to the hinder legs, where it is fastened, and by an ingenious contrivance. The legs are moved up and down by hand, an old gun-barrel being used for the pipe. Whilst his uncle was at Salgar on business, he died, and left his property to Muhammad's mother. He then worked a short time with another relative. It is laborious work, manufacturing, farming implements and tools. Machinery is greatly needed in Africa, the want of which is a great drawback to the manufacturers of that country. The iron is of first-rate quality, very much superior to the iron of America. Iron, copper and brass are twisted into rings, which are worn as ornaments about the ankles and arms. There are hundreds and thousands of men in the world who rejoice to do good, and who are seeking means to employ their time and their talents. To such as these, who peruse the pages of this work, the hint here thrown out may not be lost. A wide field of usefulness presents itself in that much-neglected part of the world, where men are to be found who only need the teaching to make good citizens, good mechanics, good farmers, good men, and good Christians. To those who would direct their efforts in the behalf of such a nation, no doubt remains but that God would bless their works, their deeds would praise them, and millions yet unborn would call them blessed. Go then, ye philanthropists, and Christian men and women, to these benighted people, offer them the hand of assistance, and raise them to the standard of their fellow men, and give all the countenance you can to their endeavors to usefulness and goodness, never caring for the scoffs and frowns of a cold and callous world. Let your works be of such a nature as all good men will speak well of you, and your own consciences approvingly assent. Africa is rich in every respect except in knowledge. The knowledge of the white man is needed, but not his vices. The religion of the white man is needed, but more of it, 
more of the spirit of true religion such as the bible teaches love to god and love to men who will go to africa who will carry the bible there and who will teach the poor benighted african the arts and sciences who will do all this let the reply be prompt let it be full of life and energy let the saviour's command be obeyed go ye out into all the world and preach the gospel save all those who are perishing for lack of knowledge for the lack of that knowledge you have the power to impart hesitate no longer for now is the time the accepted time the night cometh when no man can work and the day our day is fast waning o christian friends up and be doing mahama's brother was a kind of fortune-teller who when the king was about to go to war was consulted by him to know whether the issue of the war would be in his favor or not this was done by signs and figures made in the sand and all he predicted was fully believed would come to pass so that by his own mysterious power he could either cause the king to wage war or bring the matter to an end he at one time went to burgu some distance from the east of us where he remained two years a great war was fought during that time and he was taken prisoner but was released by his mother paying a ransom when he returned home again he then went to daboya which was a long way off to the southwest of zugu beyond a very large river at that place a great many kinds of articles of european manufacture were to be found such as glass bottles glasses combs calluses etc but the buildings were mostly the same as those at zugu but the city was not surrounded by walls as at the latter here also the king was at war and invited my brother the cause of this war was that a king had died and a dispute having arisen as is very often the case between true brothers which should be the king they adopted such means to decide who should succeed and he who could gather the greatest forces was the successor the unsuccessful candidate placing himself under the protection of a neighboring king until he could gather up sufficient forces to enable him successfully to push on the war and thus wrest the kingdom from his brother after mahama's brother had been some time with the king mahama himself went thither with many others to carry grain as it had become scarce there on account of the war it was about seventeen days journey from zugu the manner of travel being on foot with the sacks of grain upon their heads a rather tedious and unpleasant mode of travelling and transporting merchandise considering the facilities for such purposes afforded in america and europe they arrived safely on a saturday and heard that war would be waging that day but it was not resumed until the next day the king was advised by his counsellor to go out and meet the enemy in the woods but did not do so he then went to the king's house and after breakfasting next morning the guns began to boom away and the war went on in earnest guns were used by them on this occasion much more than bows and arrows the war was too hot for the king when he together with his counsellor fled for their lives my companions says mahama and myself ran to the river but could not cross it we hid ourselves in the tall grass but the enemy came and found us and made us all prisoners i was tied up very tightly they placed a rope around my neck and took me off with them we travelled together a wood and came to a place 
I shall never forget, full of mosquitoes. But they were indeed mosquitoes, none of your small flies, gnats, and such like, that people in North America call mosquitoes, but real big hungry fellows, with stings and suckers enough to drain every drop of blood out of a man's body at one draw. They came whim, whim about our ears, and bite they did, full of wrathful vengeance. I never wished to be in that place again, or any other like it. It was truly horrible. Whilst travelling through the wood, we met my brother, but neither of us spoke or seemed to know each other. He turned another way without arousing any suspicion, and then went to a place and procured a person to purchase me. Had it been known who it was, they would have insisted upon a very great price as my ransom, but it was only a small sum that was required for my release. It should have been mentioned that the city was destroyed, the women and children having been sent away. When the wars come on suddenly, the women and children have no means to escape, but are taken prisoners and sold into slavery. After my purchase and release, my brother sent me home again with some friends, and on my return home, I paid our king a visit. He was related to my mother. In a few days after, whilst at home, the king sent for me, and said he wished me to live with him entirely. So, accordingly, I remained in his house, and he appointed me a Cherico, that is a kind of bodyguard to the king. I stood only third from the king, Magazi and Waru being the two only in rank above me, next to the king himself. Magazi was an old man, and Waru a youth. I remained with the king day and night, ate and drank with him, and was his messenger in and out of the city. The king did not reside in the city, but a few miles from it. The Africans have a curious way of reckoning distances. They carry their burdens upon their heads and proceed until tired, which is called Lohafau, and in English means one mile. The king, continues Mahama, kept nothing from me, but sometimes, when he had very important affairs in hand, he would consult the more experienced Magazi. The kings are called Masa Saba, and govern several places, and, like the pharaohs of old, all are called Masa Saba. When the king of the city dies, the Masa Sabas are called upon to decide who shall succeed him. If war comes upon them, he is found foremost amongst the brave. His residence is generally in a dense thicket, built after the manner of the country, but garnished on the outside with marble. There are two kinds of marble there, one quite white and the other red. These marbles are pounded to a fine dust, and whilst the mortar which is used in the building of houses is soft, pieces of the marble are taken and pressed into it, in any fantastic shape and figure they fancy, which makes the wall stronger and gives the building, when finished, a pretty ornamental appearance. The mortar in which the women grind yams and harney into flour, mentioned in a previous part of this work, requires some light notice, as it is very interesting. A number of men go into the forest and select a very large tree of a particular kind, which is used for the purpose, cut it down, and cut off a log about four feet long. It is then hollowed out and made very smooth, and when all is ready, the king invites a large number of men, who roll it by hand to his house, and place it where it is designed to stand. This mortar is generally so large in circumference that ten or fifteen persons may stand around it to work at one time. 
Masasaba was a generous man, and given to hospitality, consequently had a great deal of company. They love feasting in Africa, as well as in any other part of the world, and when the kings give feasts, everything that the country affords is provided. This makes them very popular with the people. Mahama cannot distinctly state how long he lived with the king, but it was a considerable length of time. Whilst he was there, he became very wicked. But, says he, at that time I scarce knew what wickedness was. The practices of the soldiers and guards, I am now convinced, was very bad indeed, having full power and authority from the king to commit all kinds of depredations they pleased upon the people, without fear of his displeasure or punishment. At all times, when they were bent on mischief, or imagined they needed anything, they would pounce upon the people, and take from them whatever they chose, as resistance was quite out of the way, and useless, the king's decree being known to all the country round about. These privileges were allowed a soldiery in lieu of pay, so we plundered for a living. If the king needed palm wine for a feast, or at any other time, he would send me, and I would take some of his slaves along with me, and knowing by what road the country people laden with wine would come into the city, I would, with the slaves, hide in the long grass, whilst one of our number would climb a high tree and be on the lookout for anyone coming. As soon as he would espy a woman with a calabash on her head, women only carry the wine to market, he would inform us, and we would instantly surround her and secure the wine. If the wine was good, she lost it. If poor, we would return it to her, as the king never drank bad wine, but with the caution that she was to tell no one that the guards were in ambush, otherwise we should not be enabled to fall upon others, so that the king would have to go without his wine. In this way, toll is levied upon all who bear wine into town, whenever the king needs it. If one woman does not carry sufficient wine for the king's use, others are served in the same way until sufficient is obtained. Other articles are also seized upon whenever the king needs them. In front of the king's house or palace was a very large courtyard, beautifully shaded by lofty trees. On one side of this court there were three or four trees, under which a rude throne was built of earth thrown into a heap and covered over with mortar being joined from tree to tree, which was several feet high, and ascended by steps of the same material. On the throne there was a seat, cushioned and covered with red leather, made from the skin of the basse, which was used for no other purpose. On either side were seats for his two young wives, which was occupied by two of his favorites in their absence. My seat were at the foot of the throne, on the one side of the steps, and that of Waru on the other. Beyond was the seat occupied by Magazi. The king would drink in the presence of his wives, but not eat. Whenever he drank, one of his wives or favorites would kneel before him and place her hands under his chin, so as to prevent any of the drink being spilled upon his person. In their absence, that duty devolved upon me. Whenever the king required me for anything, he would say, Gardawa. I would reply sabi, a term used only in speaking to the king, and immediately run towards him, falling on my face before him, in an attitude of the most respectful attention. He would then state what he needed, when I would go at full speed to obey his commands, 
walking not being permitted when about the king's business. When he desired anything of Magazi, he would call me to communicate to him his will. Thus was I kept running about from morning till night, while his feasts lasted. It was very hard work to attend upon such a king, I can assure you, kind readers. At the king's feasts all the principal personages would assemble and dine with him. Those most of consequence would be entertained at the house of Magazi, and those next at other houses, so that the guests were scattered all round about. It is the duty of the women to prepare the food, etc. To give more fully a description of the manner and customs of the people would no doubt be highly interesting to most of our readers, and it would give us great pleasure to do so, would the limits of the present work admit of it. But at present we must hope they will be contented and pleased with what has already been written for them, and it is to be hoped they will profit by its perusal. At some other time, should the public think fit to patronize those few stray sheets, it may be that a larger and more extensive volume may be issued by the author of the present work, in which will be given more fully everything within his knowledge of Africa and the Africans. We will now at once turn to the more interesting portion of Muhammad's history, which treats of his capture in Africa and subsequent slavery. We will give the matter in nearly his own words. It has already been stated that when any person gives evidence of gaining an eminent position in the country, he is immediately envied, and means are taken to put him out of the way. Thus, when it was seen that my situation was one of trust and confidence with the king, I was of course soon singled out as a fit object of vengeance by an envious class of my countrymen, decoyed away and sold into slavery. I went to the city one day to see my mother, when I was followed by music, the drum, and called to by name, the drum beating to the measure of a song which had been composed apparently in honor of me, on account of, as I supposed, my elevated position with the king. This pleased me mightily, and I felt highly flattered, and was very liberal, and gave the people money and wine, they singing and gesturing the time. About a mile from my mother's house, where a strong drink called Bagi was made out of the grain harney, thither we repaired, and when I had drank plentifully of Bagi, I was quite intoxicated, and they persuaded me to go with them to Zaraku, about one mile from Zugu, to visit a strange king that I had never seen before. When we arrived there, the king made much of us all, and a great feast was prepared, and plenty of drink was given to me. Indeed, all appeared to drink very freely. In the morning, when I arose, I found that I was a prisoner, and my companions were all gone. Oh, horror! I then discovered that I had been betrayed into the hands of my enemies, and sold for a slave. Never shall I forget my feelings on that occasion. The thoughts of my poor mother harassed me very much, and the loss of my liberty and honorable position with the king grieved me very sorely. I lamented bitterly my folly in being so easily deceived, and was led to drown all caution in the bowl. Had it not been that my senses had been taken from me, the chance was that I should have escaped their snares, at least for that time. The man, in whose company I found myself left by my cruel companions, was one whose employment was to rid the country of all such as myself. 
the way he secured me was after the following manner he took a limb of a tree that had two prongs and shaped it so that it would cross the back of my neck it was then fastened in front with an iron bolt the stick was about six feet long confined thus i was marched forward towards the coast to a place called aruzu which was a large village there i found some friends who felt very much about my position but had no means of helping me we only stayed there one night as my master wanted to hurry on as i had told him i would get away from him and go home he then took me to a place called chirachuri there i also had friends but could not see them as he kept very close watch over me and he always stayed at places prepared for the purpose of keeping the slaves in security there were holes in the walls in which my feet were placed a kind of stocks he then took me on to a place called chamma after passing through many strange places the names of which i do not recollect where he sold me we had then been about four days from home and had travelled very rapidly i remained only one day when i was again sold to a woman who took me to efau she had along with her some young men into whose charge i was given but she journeyed with us we were several days going there i suffered very much travelling through the woods and never saw a human being all the journey there was no regular road but we had to make our passage as well as we could the inhabitants about chamma lived chiefly by hunting wild animals which are there very numerous i saw many during the two days but do not know their names in english the people go nearly naked and are of the rudest description the country through which we passed after leaving chirachiri was quite hilly water abundant and of good quality the trees are very large we did not suffer anything from heat on the journey as the weather was quite cool and pleasant it would be a healthy and delightful country were it inhabited by civilized people and cultivated the flowers are various and beautiful the trees full of birds large and small some sing very delightfully we crossed several large streams of water which had it not been the dry season would have been very deep as it was they were easily forded being no more than three feet of water in some places there were great quantities of aquatic birds sporting about we saw swans in abundance we tried to kill some but found it very difficult as their movements are very quick upon the water they have a most beautiful appearance when on the wing the necks and wings extended in the air they are perfectly white never fly very high nor far away their flesh is sweet and good and considered a great dish after passing through the woods we came to a small place where the woman who had purchased me had some friends here i was treated very well indeed during the day but at night i was closely confined as they were afraid i would make my escape i could not sleep all night i was so tightly kept after remaining there for the space of two days we started on our journey again travelling day after day the country through which we passed continued quite hilly and mountainous we passed some very high mountains which i believe recall the mountains of kong the weather all the time continued cool and pleasant water was found in great abundance of very excellent quality the roads in some places where the land was level was quite sandy but only for short distances together the country was very thinly settled all the way from chamma 
The woods along the route are not very extensive, but large tracts of land, covered with a very tall grass. We passed some places where fire had consumed the grass, something after the manner of the prairies of south and southwestern North America. I will here describe the manner of firing grass in Africa. The grass, when it has attained a large growth, is a refuge or haunt for the wild animals, abounding in that part of the country, and when it is decided to fire the grass, notice is sent to all people for miles round about, and the hunters come prepared with bows and arrows, who station themselves all around for several miles and form a large circle. When the fire is applied at one point, it is soon discovered by the party on the opposite, who immediately fires his portion, and so on, all round about, until the hole is fired. The fire strikes inward, towards the center, never spreading outside the circle. The hunters follow up the flames, and being prepared with branches of trees, bearing large leaves, throw them down before them to stand upon, so as to let fly their arrows upon the terrified animals, who flee before the devouring element into the center of the fire. The hunters, of course, following up their game around the outside of the burning mass, slaying all before them as they proceed. They are excellent marksmen, and the poor affrighted creatures have very little chance for their lives at such times. Immense numbers are killed, as well as serpents in great quantities. But to return. Whilst passing over those places which had been recently burned, our travel was much quicker, not having much of anything to impede our progress. But where the grass stood as a wall on either side of us, we had to travel very cautiously, fearing the wild animals would spring out and fall upon us. The people of America do not know anything about tall grass such as in Africa. The tall grass of the American prairies is a child beside a giant in comparison with the grass of the torrid zone. It grows generally twelve feet high, but sometimes much higher, and nothing can be seen that is ever so near you, it being so thick and stout, closer even than the small groves of timber in this country. At length we arrived at Efau, where I was again sold. The woman seemed sorry to part with me, and gave me a small present on my leaving them. Efau is quite a large place. The houses were of different construction to those in Zugu, and had not so good an appearance. The man to whom I was again sold was very rich, and had a great number of wives and slaves. I was placed in charge of an old slave. Whilst there, a great dance was held, and I was fearful they were going to kill me, as I had heard they did so in some places, and I fancied the dance was only a preliminary part of the ceremony. At any rate, I did not feel at all comfortable about the matter. I was at Efau several weeks, and was very well treated during that time, but as I did not like the work assigned me, they saw that I was uneasy, and as they were fearful of losing me, I was locked up every night. The country around Efau was very mountainous, and from the city the mountains in the distance had a noble appearance. After leaving Efau, we had no stopping place until we reached Dohama. We remained in the woods by night and traveled during the day, as there were wild beasts in great abundance, and we were compelled to build up large fires at night to keep away the ferocious animals, which otherwise would have fallen upon us and torn us to pieces. We could hear them howling round about during the night. There was one around in particular the people most dreaded. It was of the form of a cat with a long body. Some were all of a color, others spotted very beautifully. 
the eyes of which shone like lustrous orbs of fire by night. It is there called the Gunu. I presume from the description it must be what is here known as the leopard, as from what I understand the description is about the same. The Hama is about three days' journey from Efau, and is quite a large city, the houses being built differently to any I had previously seen. The surrounding country is level and the roads are good. It is more thickly settled than any other part I had passed through, though not so well as Zugu. The manners of the people, too, were altogether different to anything I had ever before seen. I was being conducted through the city, and as we passed along we were met by a woman, and my keeper, who was with me, immediately took to his heels and ran back as hard as he could. I stood stock still, not knowing the meaning of it. He saw I did not attempt to follow him, or to move one way or another, and he called to me in the Fau language to follow him, which I did. Then he told me, after we rested, that the woman we had met was the king's wife, and it is a mark of respect to run whenever she is in sight of any of her subjects. There were gates to the city, and a toll was demanded on passing through. I remained there but a short time, but I learned that it was a great place for whiskey, and the people were very fond of dancing. At this place I saw oranges for the first time in my life. I was told, whilst there, that the king's house was ornamented on the outside with human skulls, but did not see it. When we arrived here, I began to give up all hopes of ever getting back to my home again, but had entertained hopes until this time of being able to make my escape, and by some means or other of once more seeing my native place. But at last hope gave way, the last ray seemed fading away, and my heart felt sad and weary within me, as I thought of my home, my mother, whom I loved most tenderly, and the thoughts of never more beholding her added very much to my perplexities. I felt sad and lonely wherever I did roam, and my heart sank within me when I thought of the old folks at home. Some persons suppose that the African has none of the finer feelings of humanity within his breast, and that the milk of human kindness runs not through his composition. This is an error an error of the grossest kind. The feelings which animated the whole human race lived within the sable creatures of the torrid zone, as well as in the inhabitants of the temperate and frigid. The same impulses drive them to action, the same feeling of love move within their bosom, the same maternal and paternal affections are there, the same hopes and fears, griefs and joys. Indeed, all is there as in the rest of mankind." The only difference is their color, and that has been arranged by him who made the world, and all that therein is, the heavens, and the waters of the mighty deep, the moon, the sun and stars, the firmament, and all that has been made from the beginning until now. Therefore, why should any despise the works of his hands, which has been made and fashioned according to his almighty power, in the plentitude of his goodness and mercy? O ye despisers of his works! Look ye to yourselves and take heed. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We then proceeded to Graffe, about a day and a half's journey. The land we passed was pretty thickly settled, and generally well cultivated, but I do not recollect that we passed any streams of water after entering upon this level country. At Graffe I saw the first white man, which you may be sure took my attention very much. 
the windows in the houses also looked strange and this was the first time in my life that i had ever seen houses having windows they took me to a white man's house where we remained until the morning when my breakfast was brought in to me and judge my astonishment to find that the person who brought in my breakfast was an old acquaintance who came from the same place he did not exactly know me at first but when he asked me if my name was gardo and i told him it was the poor fellow was overjoyed and took me by the hands and shook me violently he was so glad to see me his name was wuru and had come from zugu having been enslaved about two years his friends could never tell what had become of him he inquired after his friends at zugu asked me if i had lately come from there looked at my head and observed that i had the same shave that i had when we were in zugu together i told him that i had it may be as well to remark in this place that in africa the nations of the different parts of the country have their different modes of shaving the head and are known from that mark to what part of the country they belong in zugu the hair is shaven off each side of the head and on the top of the head from the forehead to the back part it is left to grow in three round spots which is allowed to grow quite long the spaces between being shaven very close there is no difficulty to a person acquainted with the different shaves to know what part any man belongs to wuru seemed very anxious that i should remain at grafe but i was destined for other parts this town is situated on a large river after breakfast i was taken down to the river and placed on board a boat the river was very large and branched off in two different directions previous to emptying itself into the sea the boat in which the slaves were placed was large and propelled by oars although it had sails as well but the wind not being strong enough oars were used as well we were two nights and one day on this river when we came to a very beautiful place the name of which i do not remember we did not remain here very long but as soon as the slaves were all collected together and the ship ready to sail we lost no time in putting to sea whilst at this place the slaves were all put into a pen and placed with their backs to the fire and ordered not to look about us and to ensure obedience a man was placed in front with a whip in his hand ready to strike the first who should dare to disobey orders another man then went round with a hot iron and branded us the same as they would the heads of barrels or any other inanimate goods or merchandise when all were ready to go aboard we were chained together and tied with ropes round about our necks and were thus drawn down to the seashore the ship was lying some distance off i had never seen a ship before and my idea of it was that it was some object of worship of the white men i imagined that we were all to be slaughtered and were being led there for that purpose i felt alarmed for my safety and despondency had almost taken sole possession of me a kind of feast was made ashore that day and those who rowed the boats were plentifully regaled with whisky and the slaves were given rice and other good things in abundance i was not aware that it was to be my last feast in africa i did not know my destiny happy for me that i did not all i knew was that i was a slave chained by the neck and that i must readily and willingly submit come what would which i considered was as much as i had any right to know at length when we reached the beach and stood on the sand oh 
How I wish that the sand would open and swallow me up. My wretchedness I cannot describe. It was beyond description. The reader may imagine, but anything like an outline of my feelings would fall very short of the mark indeed. There were slaves brought hither from all parts of the country, and taken on board the ship. The first boat had reached the vessel in safety, notwithstanding the high wind and rough sea. But the last boat that ventured was upset, and all in her but one man were drowned. The number who were lost was about thirty. The man that was saved was very stout, and stood at the head of the boat with a chain in his hand, which he grasped very tightly in order to steady the boat. And when the boat turned over, he was thrown with the rest into the sea, but on rising, by some means under the boat, managed to turn it over, and thus saved himself by springing into her when she righted. This required great strength, and being a powerful man gave him the advantage over the rest. The next boat that was put to sea I was placed in, but God saw fit to spare me, perhaps for some good purpose. I was then placed in that most horrible of all places, the slave ship. End of chapter 7, part 1